This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Two, Part Seven. The chief direction of affairs was now entrusted to Sir Thomas Osborne, a Yorkshire baronet who had in the House of Commons shown eminent talents for business and debate. Osborne became Lord Treasurer, and was soon created Earl of Danby. He was not a man whose character, if tried by any high standard of morality, would appear to merit approbation. He was greedy of wealth and honours, corrupt himself and a corrupter of others. The cabal had bequeathed to him the art of bribing parliaments, an art still rude and giving little promise of the rare perfection to which it was brought in the following century. He improved greatly on the plan of the first inventors. They had merely purchased orators, but every man who had a vote might sell himself to Danby. Yet the new minister must not be confounded with the negotiators of Dover. He was not without the feelings of an Englishman and a Protestant nor did he, in his solicitude for his own interests, ever wholly forget the interests of his country and of his religion. He was desirous, indeed, to exalt the prerogative, but the means by which he proposed to exalt it were widely different from those which had been contemplated by Arlington and Clifford. The thought of establishing arbitrary power by calling in the aid of foreign arms, by reducing the kingdom to the rank of a dependent principality, never entered into his mind. His plan was to rally round the monarchy, those classes which had been firm allies of the monarchy, during the troubles of the preceding generation, and which had been disgusted by the recent crimes and errors of the court. With the help of the old cavalier interest of the nobles, of the country gentlemen, of the clergy, and of the universities, it might, he conceived, be possible to make Charles not indeed an absolute sovereign, but a sovereign scarcely less powerful than Elizabeth had been. Prompted by these feelings, Danby formed the design of securing to the cavalier party the exclusive possession of all political power, both executive and legislative. In the year 1675, accordingly, a bill was offered to the Lords, which provided that no person should hold any office, or should sit in either House of Parliament, without first declaring an oath that he considered resistance to the kingly power as, in all cases, criminal, and that he would never endeavour to alter the government, either in church or state. During several weeks, the debates, divisions, and protests caused by this proposition kept the country in a state of excitement. The opposition in the House of Lords, headed by two members of the cabal, who were desirous to make their peace with the nation, Buckingham and Shaftesbury, was beyond all precedent vehement and pertinacious, and at length proved successful. The bill was not indeed rejected, but was retarded, mutilated, and at length suffered to drop. So arbitrary and so exclusive was Danby's scheme of domestic policy. His opinions touching foreign policy did him more honour. They were, in truth, directly opposed to those of the cabal, and differed little from those of the country party. He bitterly lamented the degraded situation to which England was reduced, and declared with more energy than politeness that his dearest wish was to cudgel the French into a proper respect for her. 
So little did he disguise his feelings, that at a great banquet, where the most illustrious dignitaries of the state and of the church were assembled, he, not very decorously, filled his glass to the confusion of all who were against the war with France. He would, indeed, most gladly have seen his country united with the powers which were there combined against Louis, and was for that end bent on placing Temple, the author of the Triple Alliance, at the head of the department which directed foreign affairs. But the power of the Prime Minister was limited. In his most confidential letters he complained that the infatuation of his master prevented England from taking her proper place among European nations. Charles was insatiably greedy of French gold. He had by no means relinquished the hope that he might, at some future day, be able to establish absolute monarchy by the help of the French arms, and for both reasons he wished to maintain a good understanding with the court of Versailles. Thus the sovereign leaned toward one system of foreign politics, and the minister toward a system diametrically opposite. Neither the sovereign nor the minister, indeed, was of a temper to pursue any object with undeviating constancy. Each occasionally yielded to the importunity of the other. Their jarring inclinations and mutual concessions gave to the whole administration a strangely capricious character. Charles, sometimes from levity and indolence, suffered Danby to take steps which Louis resented as mortal injuries. Danby, on the other hand, rather than relinquish his great place, sometimes stooped to compliances which caused him bitter pain and shame. The king was brought to consent to a marriage between the Lady Mary, eldest daughter and presumptive heiress of the Duke of York, and William of Orange, the deadly enemy of France, and the hereditary champion of the Reformation. Nay, the brave Earl of Ossory, son of Ormond, was sent to assist the Dutch with some British troops, who on the most bloody day of the whole war signally vindicated the national reputation for stubborn courage. The treasurer, on the other hand, was induced not only to connive at some scandalous pecuniary transactions, which took place between his master and the court of Versailles, but to become, unwillingly indeed, and ungraciously, an agent in those transactions. Meanwhile, the country party was driven by two strong feelings in two opposite directions. The popular leaders were afraid of the greatness of Louis, who was not only making head against the whole strength of the Continental Alliance, but was even gaining ground. Yet they were afraid to entrust their own king with the means of curbing France, lest those means should be used to destroy the liberties of England. The conflict between these apprehensions, both of which were perfectly legitimate, made the policy of the opposition seem as eccentric and fickle as that of the court. The Commons called for a war with France, till the King, pressed by Danby to comply with their wish, seemed disposed to yield, and began to raise an army. But as soon as they saw that the recruiting had commenced, their dread of Louis gave place to a nearer dread they began to fear that the new levies might be employed on a service in which Charles took more interest than in the defence of Flanders. They therefore refused supplies, and clamouring for disbanding as loudly as they had just before clamoured for arming. Those historians who have severely reprehended this inconsistency do not appear to have made sufficient allowance for the embarrassing situation of subjects who have reason to believe that their prince is conspiring with a foreign and hostile power against their liberties. To refuse him military resources is to leave the state defenceless, yet to give him military resources may be only to arm him against the state. 
In such circumstances vacillation cannot be considered as a proof of dishonesty or even weakness. These jealousies were studiously fomented by the French king. He had long kept England passive by promising to support the throne against the Parliament. He now, alarmed at finding that the patriotic councils of Danby seemed likely to prevail in the closet, began to inflame the Parliament against the throne. Between Louis and the country party there was one thing, and one only in common, profound distrust of Charles. Could the country party have been certain that their sovereign meant only to make war on France, they would have been eager to support him. Could Louis have been certain that the new levies were intended only to make war on the constitution of England, he would have made no attempt to stop them, but the unsteadiness and faithlessness of Charles were such that the French government and the English opposition, agreeing in nothing else, agreed in disbelieving his protestations, and were equally desirous to keep him poor and without an army. Communications were opened between Barillon, the ambassador of Louis, and those English politicians who had always professed, and who indeed sincerely felt, the greatest dread and dislike of the French ascendancy. The most upright of the country party, William Lord Russell, son of the Earl of Bedford, did not scruple to concert with the foreign mission schemes for embarrassing his own sovereign. This was the whole extent of Russell's offence. His principles, and his fortune alike, raised him above all temptations of a sordid kind, but there is too much reason to believe that some of his associates were less scrupulous. It would be unjust to impute to them the extreme wickedness of taking bribes to injure their country. On the contrary, they meant to serve her. But it is impossible to deny that they were mean and indelicate enough to let a foreign prince pay them for serving her. Among those who cannot be acquitted of this degrading charge was one man who is popularly considered as the personification of public spirit, and who, in spite of some great moral intellectual faults, has a just claim to be called a hero, a philosopher, and a patriot. It is impossible to see, without pain, such a name in the list of the pensioners of France, yet it is some consolation to reflect that in our time a public man will be thought lost to all sense of duty and of shame, who should not spurn from him a temptation which conquered the virtue and pride of Algernon Sidney. The effect of these intrigues was that England, though she occasionally took a menacing attitude, remained inactive till the Continental War, having lasted nearly seven years, was terminated by the Treaty of Nimeguen. The United Provinces, which in 1672 had seemed to be on the verge of utter ruin, obtained honourable and advantageous terms. This narrow escape was generally ascribed to the ability and courage of the young Stadtholder. His fame was great throughout Europe, and especially among the English, who regarded him as one of their own princes, and rejoiced to see him the husband of their future queen. France retained many important towns in the Low Countries, and the great province of Franche-Comte. Almost the whole loss was borne by the decaying monarchy of Spain. A few months after the termination of hostilities on the continent came a great crisis in English politics. Towards such a crisis, things had been tending during eighteen years. The whole stock of popularity, great as it was, with which the king had commenced his administration, had long been expended. 
to loyal enthusiasm had succeeded profound disaffection. The public mind had now measured it back again the space over which it had passed between 1640 and 1660, and was once more in the state in which it had been when the long Parliament met. The prevailing discontent was compounded of many feelings. One of these was wounded national pride. That generation had seen England during a few years allied on equal terms with France, victorious over Holland and Spain, the mistress of the sea, the terror of Rome, the head of the Protestant interest. Her resources had not diminished, and it might have been expected that she would have been at least as highly considered in Europe under a legitimate king, strong in the affection and willing obedience of his subjects, as she had been under a usurper whose utmost vigilance and energy were required to keep down a mutinous people. Yet she had, in consequence of the imbecility and meanness of her rulers, sunk so low that any German or Italian principality which brought five thousand men into the fields was a more important member of the Commonwealth of Nation. With the sense of national humiliation was mingled anxiety for civil liberty. Rumours, indistinct indeed, but perhaps the more alarming by reason of their indistinctness, imputed to the court a deliberate design against all the constitutional rights of Englishmen. It had even been whispered that this design was to be carried into effect by the intervention of foreign arms. The thought of such intervention made the blood, even of the cavaliers, boil in their veins. Some, who had always professed the doctrine of non-resistance in its full extent, were now heard to mutter that there was one limitation to that doctrine, for foreign force were brought over to coerce the nation, they would not answer for their own patience. But neither national pride nor anxiety for public liberty had so great an influence on the popular mind as hatred of the Roman Catholic religion. That hatred had become one of the ruling passions of the community, and was as strong in the ignorant and profane as in those who were Protestants from conviction. The cruelties of Mary's reign, cruelties which even in the most accurate and sober narrative excites just detestation, and which were neither accurately nor soberly related in the popular martyrologies. The conspiracies against Elizabeth, and above all, the gunpowder plot, had left in the minds of the vulgar a deep and bitter feeling, which was kept up by annual commemorations, prayers, bonfires, and processions. It should be added that those classes which were peculiarly distinguished by attachment to the throne, the clergy and the landed gentry, had peculiar reasons for regarding the Church of Rome with aversion. The clergy trembled for their benefices, the landed gentry for their abbeys and great tithes. While the memory of the reign of the saints was still recent, hatred of popery had in some degree given place to hatred of Puritanism. But during the eighteen years which had elapsed since the Restoration, the hatred of Puritanism had abated, and the hatred of Popery had increased. The stipulations of the Treaty of Dover were accurately known to very few, but some hints had got abroad. The general impression was that a great blow was about to be aimed at the Protestant religion. The King was suspected by many of a leaning towards Rome. His brother and heir presumptive was known to be a bigoted Roman Catholic. The first Duchess of York had died a Roman Catholic. James had then, 
in defiance of the remonstrances of the House of Commons, taken to wife the Princess Mary of Medina, another Roman Catholic. If there should be sons by this marriage, there was reason to fear that they might be bred Roman Catholics, and that a long succession of princes, hostile to the established faith, might sit on the English throne. The constitution had recently been violated for the purpose of protecting the Roman Catholics from the penal laws. The ally, by whom the policy of England had during many years been chiefly governed, was not only a Roman Catholic, but a persecutor of the Reformed churches. Under such circumstances it is not strange that the common people should have been inclined to apprehend a return of the times of her whom they called Bloody Mary. Thus the nation was in such a temper that the smallest spark might raise a flame. At this juncture fire was set in two places at once, to the vast mass of combustible matter, and in a moment the whole was in a blaze. The French court, which knew Danby to be its mortal enemy, artfully contrived to ruin him, by making him pass for its friend. Louis, by the instrumentality of Ralph Montague, a faithless and shameless man, who had resided in France as minister from England, laid before the House of Commons proofs that the treasurer had been concerned in an application made by the court of Whitehall to the court of Versailles for a sum of money. This discovery produced its natural effect. The treasurer was, in truth, exposed to the vengeance of Parliament, not on account of his delinquencies, but on account of his merits. Not because he had been an accomplice in a criminal transaction, but because he had been a most unwilling and unserviceable accomplice, but of circumstances which have, in the judgment of posterity, greatly extenuated his fault. His contemporaries were ignorant. In their view he was the broker who had sold England to France. It seemed clear that his greatness was at an end, and doubtful whether his head could be saved. Yet was the ferment excited by this discovery slight, when compared with the commotion which arose when it was noised abroad that a great popish plot had been detected. One Titus Oates, a clergyman of the Church of England, had by his disorderly life and heterodox doctrine drawn on himself the censure of his spiritual superiors, had been compelled to quit his benefice, and had ever since led an infamous and vagrant life. He had once professed himself a Roman Catholic, and had passed some time on the continent in English colleges of the Order of Jesus. In those seminaries he had heard much wild talk about the best means of bringing England back to the true Church. From hints thus furnished he constructed a hideous romance, resembling rather the dream of a sick man than any transaction which ever took place in the real world. The Pope, he said, had entrusted the government of England to the Jesuits. The Jesuits had by commission, under the seal of their society, appointed Roman Catholic clergymen, noblemen and gentlemen, to all the highest officers in church and state. The Papists had burned down London once. They had tried to burn it down again. They were at that same moment planning a scheme for setting fire to all the shipping in the Thames. They were to rise at a signal and massacre all their Protestant neighbours. A French army was at the same time to land in Ireland. All the leading statesmen and divines of England were to be murdered. Three or four schemes had been formed for assassinating the king. He was to be stabbed, he was to be poisoned in his medicine, he was to be shot with silver bullets. The public mind was so sore and excitable that these lies readily found credit with the vulgar, 
and two events which speedily took place, led even some reflecting men to suspect that the tale, though evidently distorted and exaggerated, might have some foundation. Edward Coleman, a very busy and not very honest Roman Catholic intriguer, had been amongst the persons accused. Search was made for his papers. It was found that he had just destroyed the greater part of them, but a few which had escaped contained some passages, such as to minds strongly prepossessed, might seem to confirm the evidence of Oates. Those passages, indeed, when candidly construed, appear to express little more than the hopes which the posture of affairs, the predilections of Charles, the still stronger predilections of James, and the relations existing between the French and English courts, might naturally excite in the mind of a Roman Catholic strongly attached to the interests of his church. But the country was not then inclined to construe the letters of Papist candidly, and it was urged, with some show of reason, that if the papers which had been passed over as unimportant were filled with matter so suspicious, some great mystery of iniquity must have been contained in those documents which had been carefully committed to the flames. A few days later it was known that Sir Edmundsbury Godfrey, an eminent justice of the peace who had taken the depositions of Oates against Coleman, had disappeared. Search was made, and Godfrey's corpse was found in a field near London. It was clear that he had died by violence. It was equally clear that he had not been set upon by robbers. His fate is to this day a secret. Some think that he perished by his own hand. Some that he was slain by a private enemy. The most improbable supposition is that he was murdered by the party hostile to the court, in order to give colour to the story of the plot. The most probable supposition seems, on the whole, to be that some hot-headed Roman Catholic, driven to frenzy by the lies of Oates, and by the insults of the multitude, and not nicely distinguishing between the perjured accuser and the innocent magistrate, had taken a revenge, of which the history of persecuted sects furnishes but too many examples. If this were so, the assassin must have afterwards bitterly execrated his own wickedness and folly. The capital and the whole nation went mad with hatred and fear. The penal laws, which had begun to lose something of their edge, were sharpened anew. Everywhere justices were busied in searching houses and seizing papers. All the jails were filled with papists. London had the aspect of a city in a state of siege. The train bands were under arms all night. Preparations were made for barricading the great thoroughfares. Patrols marched up and down the streets. Cannon were planting round Whitehall. No citizen thought himself safe unless he carried under his coat a small flail loaded with lead to brain the popish assassins. The corpse of the murdered magistrate was exhibited during several days to the gaze of great multitudes, and was then committed to the grave, with strange and terrible ceremonies which indicated rather fear and the thirst of vengeance shall sorrow our religious hope. The houses insisted that a guard should be placed in the vaults over which they sate, in order to secure them against the second gunpowder plot. All their proceedings were of a piece with this demand. Ever since the reign of Elizabeth, the oath of supremacy had been exacted from members of the House of Commons. Some Roman Catholics, however, had contrived so to interpret this oath that they could take it without scruple. A more stringent test was now added. 
every member of Parliament was required to make the declaration against such transubstantiation, and thus the Roman Catholic lords were, for the first time, excluded from their seats. Strong resolutions were adopted against the Queen. Commons threw one of the secretaries of state into prison for having countersigned commissions directed to gentlemen who were not good Protestants. They impeached the Lord Treasurer of high treason. Nay, they so far forgot the doctrine which, while the memory of the Civil War was still recent, they had loudly professed, that they even attempted to wrest the command of the militia out of the King's hands. To such a temper had eighteen years of misgovernment brought the most loyal Parliament that had ever met in England. Yet it may seem strange that even in that extremity the King should have ventured to appeal to the people. For if the people were more excited than their representatives, the lower house, discontented as it was, contained a large number of cavaliers, then were likely to find seats again. But it was thought that a dissolution would put a stop to the prosecution of the Lord Treasurer, a prosecution which might probably bring to light all the guilty mysteries of the French alliance, and might thus cause extreme personal annoyance and embarrassment to Charles. Accordingly, in January 1679, the Parliament, which had been in existence ever since the beginning of the year 1661, was dissolved, and writs were issued for a general election. End of Part 7